0: The Lord God has delivered Joseph out of all his afflictions. The Lord has given Joseph favour and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh. Joseph, filled with the Spirit of God, is able to interpret Pharaoh's two dreams. There will be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Joseph then gives a wise plan to rescue the people from famine. During the seven years of plenty, go to all the land of Egypt, take 20% of all the grain and the crops, store it in houses next to the main cities, and keep it there for the time When there will be no food. Pharaoh is well pleased with this plan. And so appoints Joseph to be the right hand man. The second in command. And he gives him the royal authority. Now in verses 46 to the end. We discover how Joseph Will govern during this time period. This section deals with the entire seven years of plenty and then the beginning of the years of famine. And we want to look at this section under three headings one, the bountiful harvest, two, the blessing of God, and three, The bread of Joseph. First of all then, the bountiful harvest. The first thing that the Holy Spirit draws us to in this section is the age of Joseph when he was exalted to be governor of Egypt. Verse 46. And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Revealing this name gives us a spiritual lesson for the Christian and a revelation of Jesus Christ. The spiritual lesson comes from looking at his age... Then going back, how long did he serve suffering as a slave and in prison? And compare it to how many years did Joseph reign as governor? By saying Joseph was 30 years old, we go back to Genesis 37 and it says, his sufferings began when he was 17 years old. And so for 10 years in Potiphar's house as a slave, three years in prison, Joseph suffered for 13 years. Now let's look forward. How long did Joseph reign as governor? Genesis chapter 50 verse 26 says, Joseph died being 100... And 10 years old. That means he governed for 80 years. Suffered 13 years. Governed for 80 years. There's a spiritual lesson in that. However we suffer in this world it's not compared to the time and the glory of our own exaltation in heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says, We faint not for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Compare it, a moment for eternity. Temporary situation versus Eternal. A Christian may enter suffering for a few years or decades or even from birth to death, eighty years, ninety years, a hundred years, and have extremities in their life. But compared to their exaltation in Christ in heaven, it's not centuries. We're not talking millennia here. We're not even talking trillions of years. Much, much more. Eternity of rest. Eternity of peace. Eternity of joy. Eternity of love. And so if we as Christians have extended times of afflictions, look at Joseph, 13 years Verses 80 years: Ten years, a hundred years of suffering now, an eternity of peace and rest. James chapter one is very true. "Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them. That love him. Maybe you need to hear that truth. At this time. But the second thing we learn. About Joseph's age. Is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Joseph. Is 30. When he begins. His public ministry. To govern. If you put in. A search engine in the Bible, 30 years of age. It's only mentioned of four people. Number one, Joseph. Secondly, Numbers chapter four, priests did not begin their public service until they were 30 years old. Second Samuel chapter five. When did David become king? When did he begin his public ministry as king of Israel? 30 years of age. Children, when did Jesus begin his public ministry? What age was Jesus when he was baptised? Luke chapter 3 tells us the age when he was 30 years old. Joseph, a king, the priests, David, the Messiah, and Jesus of Nazareth, all pointing forward that our Lord would live an ordinary private life until he's 30. And then he comes in public to be baptised With the waters and what happens from heaven. The father comes. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's anointed with the Holy Ghost. And then begins his public ministry to save us from our sins. There's an interesting phrase here. Joseph stood... Before Pharaoh, and then he went out of his presence and ministered in the land of Egypt. This is an interesting phrase because the word here stood is most often used for men or prophets or priests or kings of coming in the presence of God. Before publicly serving him. So for example Abraham. Genesis 19.27. It says Abraham got up early in the morning. In the place where he stood before the Lord. Where he worshipped God is the place he stood before the Lord. Deuteronomy 4 verse 10. The day that thou stoodst before the Lord thy God in Horeb. When the Lord said unto me, gather me, the people together, and I will make them hear my words. Ezekiel forty four fifteen. They shall come to me, to minister to me. They shall stand before me. So Joseph stood in the presence of Pharaoh and then ministered. And the language is used of Abraham, of the priests, of Elijah, of Elisha, of so many examples in the scriptures. You must stand in the presence of God before engaging in ministry. And the New Testament teaches the very same thing. If our service is to bear any fruit whatsoever, we must be in the presence of God. John chapter 15 Jesus says I am the vine ye are the branches he that abideth in me and I in him the same bringeth forth fruit much fruit for without me ye can do nothing. This applies to us individually. Before you serve are you abiding before going out? are you standing in the presence of the Lord? Are you doing, 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 doing? with very little standing in the presence of God. Are you laboring, laboring, laboring? There's not much prayer and abiding in the vine. You can do and labor all you want, even things that are biblical. And you will not bear fruit. Because Christ says, my glory I will not give to another. He gets the glory because we say we can do nothing without him. Therefore, daily abiding in word and prayer, seeking his blessing, asking for strength and grace, showering everything we do, all the seeds showers to the one, the Lord gives the increase. Only then will there be fruit. This is a warning to us. Mothers, fathers raising our children, you're doing all the right things, the biblical things, the faithful things, but are you abiding for the Lord to bless that? The church is too much full, the church is too filled with activity. Activity. Do, 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 class, 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 group, group, group. And very little standing in the presence of God. Very little prayer, very little beseeching, very little begging God to bless. Churches usually have multiple groups and only one prayer meeting, if anything. More people are likely to go to fellowship meetings with games and activities than a prayer meeting. And that reveals a lot about our soul. We must remember. We must stand in the presence of God before doing. Take the apostles as an illustrative example. Jesus gives the Great Commission. Go! Into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And what was the first thing they did? They tarried in Acts 1. They prayed and waited for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came, then they went out in power. Now, that can be abused. That's why I said an illustration. You do nothing in the church until there's a tangible sense of power. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. I'm saying the basic pattern of praying for the Holy Spirit to come and bless your labours and then going out and labouring, that's the pattern I as a minister should do and we as individuals should do and as a congregation. Stand in the presence of the Lord and then go forth. But then in verse 47... The Holy Spirit tells us the seven years of plenty were absolutely abundant. In the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handfuls. So plenty means abounding. Handfuls has the idea of every single field you went to. You would look at a single ear of grain... And your whole hand was filled with grain. And then, in verse 49, Joseph gathered corn or grain as the sand of the sea. Children, have you ever been to the beach? Have you ever seen sand? Have you ever tried to Count the grains of sand. You can never do it. It's just so much. Just like the harvest. Until he left numbering for it was without number. The Egyptians were known for being meticulous in record keeping. They're intelligent people. And so every field they would go and the handfuls of corn, they'll be taking it and they'll be noting it down. The number, the batches, everything's recorded. But the years of plenty are so abundant, they just stop taking record. There's no point. The abounding harvest is innumerable. And Joseph then goes from field to field, region to region, gathering it all up and storing it for the coming famine. Secondly, the blessing of God. The Lord God does not simply bless the crops of the field. He's blessing Joseph's own household. Verse 50, And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came. So in the year of plenty, the years of plenty... The Lord God is blessing Joseph's household with children. And we should not miss the redemptive historical significance of this. Because Joseph here is representing the covenant household. Remember what God said Abraham, I'm choosing you at the land of Ur. And through you, a whole nation's going to come. And through your seeds, it's going to be blessings across the whole world. And Abraham looked for a child. And the child of promise was Isaac. And then Jacob. And he is Joseph. And through Joseph's loins are going to be two very large abounding tribes. And so God is building his church through the loins of Joseph. Who will be members of Westminster Presbyterian Church in a hundred years? Well, God ordinarily builds his church, as this morning, through the covenant line. Now, I myself am not of the covenant line. I was one of those afar off and God's grace brought me in. Now I'm in the covenant and then, of course, Lord willing, My own children will be saved and they'll continue that new branch of the covenant lying. So God doesn't exclusively build it that way. Praise be to God. But ordinarily, God builds his church through generations. And that's a wonderful thing. Why are we having children? It's a godly seed to build the church, to bless our nation. And so when we are raising children... We're not just raising children for their own benefit, though we are doing it for that, of course, but it's for the benefit of our church and the next generation and the next and the next and the next. And you think that as parents, that's amazing. How many people can say, what I do in life will have a real impact in a 100 years' time? Very little people can say that. But every mother every father, every grandparent can say, as I invest in my children, my Manasseh, my Ephraim, God's covenant blessings are for a 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. That's a wonderful motivation and encouragement for Christian parenting. But what are these children of Joseph? As Joseph has children. Note, they do not have Egyptian names. They have Hebrew names. Manasseh is a Hebrew name. Ephraim, Hebrew name. That's significant. Last time, we looked at who Joseph married. He married a woman of Egypt. And that can be quite a stickling block for different people because he's of the current line and he's Marrying someone outside. But Joseph hasn't apostasized here. He's in his household, is dedicating his household, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And as he has his children, he says, I know my God, I know why I'm here, I know what's going on, my children are given Hebrew names. And these Hebrew names reveals something of the spiritual state of Joseph. The first bond is named Manasseh. In the Hebrew, this means forget. And the reason why he would call his son forget is stated, for God hath me to forget all my toil and all my father's house. Toil here means the pain and anguish of service. The father's house here is speaking specifically of the source of all his pain and anguish of service. His own brethren hating him, despising him, trying to kill him, throwing him in a pit and then selling him into slavery. Now, forget here means not, I've completely forgotten, I have no recollection. That's foolish, of course. The very fact he names his child forget and he remembers his own toil in father's house would seem very silly indeed. So forgetting the Bible does not mean I have no idea, I can't remember any of these things. The word forget in the Bible means... The sting of the pain is gone, and comfort has been brought in. Job eleven sixteen. Thou shalt forget thy misery, and remember it as waters that pass by. So Job's obviously suffering, loss of family, loss of possessions, loss of good health and the pain and anguish of that fills him. What does it say? Forget it. Not mentally forget it, but the sting and the pain and the anguish will be removed and comfort will come in so that when he remembers it, the comfort is more than the pain. Isaiah 54 verse 4, fear not. For thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded. For thou shalt not put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shall not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. So there Isaiah speaking of forgiveness of sins to Israel, and they think of the shame of their youth. It doesn't say you have no memory, no recollection of that shame. No, no, I'm going to so fully forgive you. You're going to be filled with comfort. It's going to overtake the shame of your youth. And so Joseph is not saying here, I have no recollection of pain or I'm going to forget about my family. He's not saying that. He is saying the toil, the anguish and pain that came from my father's house and being hated The Lord God has caused me to forget. He's comforted me. And so when I look back, the comfort is greater than the sorrow. And I think this is when he truly knows in his heart full forgiveness of his brothers. He will state that later, as we'll see in our series. But right here, right now, as he has a child... And the comfort of God exalting him and keeping his promise to him. I forget the pain and the sorrow because you've blessed me and comforted me. If you're a Christian, you know something of this. There's something in the past for you. Whether it's a shameful thing, Isaiah 44. Or whether it's a suffering thing like Joseph and Job. And it's been extremely hard. But the Lord's with you and blessed you or delivered you. And when you look back, the memory of the pain is there. But the comfort of Jesus Christ upon your soul overtakes the anguish of the past. But then we have the second son, Ephraim. Technically it means double fruit or fruitful And again, he gives us the reason why he names his son Fruitful. For God, sorry, verse 52. For God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph's recollection. I have been in the land of Egypt, a foreign land, a Gentile land, A land I have only known affliction for 13 years. But when I look back at the affliction, God has always abounded in my life. He's always been with me and I've been fruitful. He's sold into slavery. He goes into Potiphar's house and what does it say? The Lord was with Joseph. And so Potiphar takes him makes him the overseer of all his house. Joseph then does what's right, will not sin in the sight of God, will not commit adultery. Potiphar's wife lies. He goes to prison. What does it say straight away? The Lord of Joseph. And he works hard and he labours and the prison guard says, you can be the overseer of all the prison. And then Joseph is raised out of prison and he comes before Pharaoh. Joseph says, I can't interpret dreams. I don't have it in me, only God. The Lord God was with Joseph again. And he gave him the understanding, the interpretation of the dreams. And what happened again? He bears fruit, exalted to the right hand of God. And again, Christians know this experience. In the midst of your afflictions, in the midst of your sufferings, the Lord God made me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. And that's the way it's supposed to be. John chapter 15 again. We love to read, I am the vine, we are the branches, abide and bear much fruit. But verse 2 shows you how you really bear fruit. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he purgeth it. So that it may bring forth more fruit. God comes out and he snips. So you can have more fruit. He gives you sickness. He gives you ailment. He gives you a loss of a job. He gives you hardship. He gives you difficulties. He gives you afflictions. He's purging. He's snipping away all the dross so that you bear much fruit. I'm sure like you, uh, like me and both of us, all of us, we all love to read Christian biography in church history. Name me a godly man or a godly woman who didn't suffer. After the service, come to me and show me one godly man or godly, one godly woman who you've read and they're close to the Lord, they're examples and they bore fruit and they didn't suffer. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. And so every Christian. Has an Ephraim experience in my sufferings, in my adversities, in my afflictions. The Lord made me fruitful. Psalm one hundred and nineteen says, "I thank God for my afflictions." Thirdly, the bread of Joseph. In verses fifty-two to fifty-seven, the years of plenty. Cease. And people would have had their own private store of food, of course, but it lasts a very little time. And this famine is sore. There's a dearth. It's severe. And there's no food in the land of Egypt. And people are starving. And we in the West have no idea what that really means. We have no idea. When was the last time there was a famine in this nation where most of the nation were literally starving? Maybe the Depression because of economic reasons. Maybe the 19th century. But we don't know this by experience. Other people in other nations know exactly. And through the TV screen we know. The child whose skin and bones. The adult who is gauntly and sickly to look at. That's the kind of famine we're talking about here. And it's so bad, it says in the last verse, that even the whole countries around about are suffering. And we know, because most of us know the life of Joseph, it's not just affecting Egypt, It goes all the way up to the Middle East, as we call it, all the way up to the land of Canaan. And people are coming to Pharaoh Pharaoh, we're hungry, we're starving, we're famished, we need food, give us bread. And Pharaoh says, Go to Joseph. Go to Joseph. He has the bread. This section just illuminates with the gospel. It illuminates with the experience of a sinner coming to Jesus Christ. We have a famine here because we have a famine in the soul. We lack, we want righteousness and goodness. Romans 3, Jew and Gentile, they are all under sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There's a famine. But there's also a famine of peace and rest. In this world, people are trying to seek for rest and joy and love and they never find it. There's fleeting experiences. this temporary possession. But it's never enough. Never filling. Never satisfying. Never continuing. Isaiah 54. Sorry, Isaiah uh, 57 verse 20. The wicked... Are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. Whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace saith my God to the wicked. Maybe that's someone here. Their soul is like the troubled sea. There's no peace. There's no rest. There's no satisfaction. There's no contentment. There's always striving and discontentment and coveting and yearning. Because there's a famine in the soul. And then it's because they're famished. They're hungry. They're starving. Matthew chapter 5. The poor in spirit. Those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Where the sinner knows they cannot find what they need by themselves. They need answers outside of themselves they want they lack they need and so there's a cry there's a cry to pharaoh give me bread give me food fill my stomach i need help like a sinner crying out to god God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is one way how we know the Spirit of God is working on a sinner. Because when a man or woman or child is outside of the influence of the Spirit of God, they're self-content, self-righteous and have no desire for God. But when the spirit of God works, he takes us to the end of ourselves to see the barrenness and the famine of the soul and knowing God and God only can provide. But for the sinner, going to God will do nothing. What does Pharaoh say? Go to Joseph. Go to Joseph. The only way we can ever find fulfillment, satisfaction, bread, life, salvation, peace and rest is going to Jesus. If you go to God, the only thing you're going to see is holiness and justice you could never ever merit. If you go straight to the Father, he will only say, you're not my son you're not my daughter. If you go to the Spirit, he'll say, my work is not to glorify myself. I am testifying, go to Joseph. Some of us here are trying to find life by going to church. Church will not save you. Church will not give you rest. Church says... Look unto Jesus. Some of us might be trying to find meaning and purpose in life in baptism. I'm not like people out there, I'm in the church. Baptism won't save you, baptism says, go to Jesus. Some of us might be trying to find peace. In graces. And you're trying to go to faith to give you peace, faith to give you assurance, faith to give you rest. Faith can't do that. Faith is a trusting outside of self to go to Joseph. Some people try to find rest in repentance. Repentance can't give you that. Because your repentance will always be imperfect. Repentance is a turning from sin to Christ. Repentance takes you to Christ. Some people want to find rest in an emotional experience. A particular church service. A particular praise band. A particular time at the Lord's Supper. And you put all your hope. In an emotional experience. Emotional experiences don't last long. Even if they're genuine. It's only the Christ who gives the experience. Who can give rest. Octavius Winslow. This may just touch the spiritual state and position of your soul. You are wondering why for years you have been seeking reading and praying and doing, and yet have not advanced a single step in your spiritual course. Not a single beam of God's love has penetrated your soul. No sweet peace flows like a river in your heart. No joy thrills your spirit, and you have no sense of reconciliation, adoption, and acceptance with the Beloved. And yet for weeks, months and years you have been travelling to God not recognising that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true spiritual Joseph of the church. It is in his hands all fullness of blessing is deposited. Go to the greater Joseph. Even Christians need this, I need this. How often we Christians are like Peter? We're on the boat, storms are going, Christ is walking, we jump off that ship and we can walk in water because we're looking and going to Jesus. But then we look at the wind and the waves and the eyes of Christ and we begin to sink. We lack assurance, joy is left. We've not experienced the love of God in a long time. I read the word of God, there's no power. I come to church, there's no blessing. Because we're not going to Jesus. But we must go to Jesus. Because he has the storehouse of bread for us. John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. I am there means exodus three fourteen I am that I am. I am the infinite, inexhaustible, independent, eternal, unchangeable God. I have come down from heaven to purchase. All the storehouse of grace for my people. Just as the corn in the field was innumerable, so the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is innumerable and unlimited for his people. Of his fullness, we receive grace for grace. Israel, in Psalm 130, there is plenteous redemption. There is abundance of mercy. And this is the only way we can find life and peace and joy and rest and meaning. A.W. Pink. Thank God the Saviour has provided for us unlimited resources. There is no shortness in him, no strainness in him. There is infinite value in that precious blood which he shed on the cross to make an atonement for sin. There is infinite mercy in his heart towards sinners. Infinite readiness and willingness to receive all who come to him. There is infinite power in his arm to deliver and keep us. There is no sinner so depraved that Christ's blood cl- cannot cleanse him. There is no sinner so bound by the fetters of Satan that Christ cannot free him. There is no sinner so weary and despondent that Christ cannot satisfy him. The bread out of the storehouse for Joseph, he sold it to the people. But that's where the paradigm breaks down. Because Christ does not sell you, he purchased it to give it for free. Isaiah 55 Everyone that thirsteth come to the waters. He that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Come, buy wine, And milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread? And your labour for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me and eat ye that which is good. And let your soul delight itself in fatness. As our Lord said in the parable, come, all things are ready. It's on the table It's prepared. There's no charge. Just come freely and eat me and I will save you from your sins. And who comes to Joseph here? Last verse. All the countries came into Egypt to buy corn. John chapter 4. The woman of Samaria. Come. Come and see a man who knows all things that I did. My shame, my lust, the men I've had, the relationship I'm in. He has washed me. Come and see him. And what does he say? Come and see the saviour of the world. First John chapter 4. We have seen and do testify that the father sent the son to be the saviour of the world. Out of every tongue, kindred, family, tribe, people, good, region, all his elect from all the world of every nation, he is the saviour of the world. If there were a billion worlds or a trillion worlds or whatever numbers after that worlds, there'd be more in the storehouse of grace for Christ to save sinners. It doesn't matter how unclean you are as this morning, it doesn't matter what shame and embarrassment we have in the past. Christ has a storehouse full of grace and abounds over our sins. So go to Joseph. Go to the greater Joseph. To the child in the room. Go to Joseph. Go to Jesus. Jesus. To the unconverted person in the room go to Jesus. To the Christian who's been following the Lord for decades go to Jesus. Whatever you need he can abundantly supply. Is it what is it you need? There's life for death, peace for enmity, righteousness for sin. Mercy for suffering, joy for sorrow, atonement for recollection, reconciliation, light for darkness, bread for your hunger, water for thirst, strength for weakness, heaven for your hell. Go to Jesus and be filled. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the greater Joseph. And Lord, we eat his bread, for his bread is life. And we confess, we who have already experienced the Saviour, he fills our hunger and satisfies us. O oh Lord, help Christians. Under the temptation of looking away, over the evil one seeking to distract us from our flesh to look to the world, help us daily to go to Jesus. And Lord be with all of our children, with all the youthfulness and the shame that could possibly may be, teach them, train them at a young age to go to Jesus. And we pray, O oh Lord, for the lost, that they would know the famine of their soul. The Spirit of God would make them famished and cry out to God. And they would go to Jesus. In the Saviour's name. Amen. Let us conclude by worshipping the Lord God in Psalm 132. Psalm 132 verses 13 to 18. The tune is Martyrdom, tune number 85. Psalm 132, 13 to 18. For God of Zion hath made choice. There he desires to dwell. This is my rest. Here still I'll stay, for I do like it well. Her food I'll greatly bless. Her poor with bread satisfy. Her priests I'll clothe with health. Her saints shall shout forth joyfully. Let us praise the Lord Christ for feeding our soul. Standing if we're able. Verses 13 to the end.